Well, for all of us, we desire to be effective in our spheres of responsibility and influence. Um, so, for example, professionally, we want to make a contribution that's useful to others. We want to be a way that's meaningful. We want to be able to personally, we want to engage with our family members and friends in a way that's meaningful. We want to be able to be an encouragement and a support to them. Uh, so professionally or personally or whatever else it may be, in the main categories of our lives, we want to be effective. Uh, and at the same time, this is true in our Christian lives as followers of Jesus, as Christian believers. Uh, over these last couple of weeks, we've been thinking through the nature of John the Baptist's ministry as a witness to Jesus. And in thinking along these witnessing lines, for all of us who've experienced the saving kindness of Jesus, we know we want to live effectively for Jesus. Uh, no doubt we feel our weakness in many ways. We may go through seasons where the, the gospel compulsion and zeal in our hearts seems to grow a bit dull. Uh, or like the psalmist, we may even go through periods of life when we're very discouraged, wondering where God may even be as we face certain trials and difficulties. Uh, but along with all of that, as we grow in knowing the Lord Jesus, there is an overarching sense in which we want to live for Him. Uh, he saved us. Nothing can separate us from His love. We have eternal hope that transcends all threat of even death. And that compelling grace sourced in Christ moves us to desire to live our lives for Christ. Uh, which is what the Apostle Paul talks about in places like 2 Corinthians when he speaks about how the love of Christ compels him or controls him because he says, I've concluded this. That one, one died for all, so all have died. And what does he say? Well, now I no longer live for myself, but for him who loved me and gave himself up for me. There's this new compulsion in our hearts as we come to rest in the love of Christ. And part of that desire to live for Jesus is evidenced as we're compelled to be a witness for Jesus. And while this can be a difficult thing and we can feel our own sense of angst about speaking about the good news of Jesus to others... Uh, we do know we're called to it, and as Christians, we want to shine as a light. We want to be effective in this way. Our hearts have been made new, and the, the new desires inside us uh, include this impulse to share the love of Christ we've come to know with others who are also in need of this kind of grace that only Christ can provide. And, and so we have those experiences where we've been praying for the opportunity, maybe. We've, Jason prayed for it this morning. We're continually praying for the opportunity uh, to speak about the gospel with others. And as those opportunities come, uh, they have various effects. One effect that they have, and maybe this is uh, your experience in many cases, one effect is, is one that we might say is very positive, in that people respond to the message about Jesus with soft hearts, and they turn toward Jesus, they trust in Him, and so on. And it's that positive effect that we have in our text this morning. Uh, so John the Baptist here is bearing witness to Jesus Christ. And in our verses, we have this wonderfully positive outcome. And uh, that some start to follow Jesus as a result of John's witness. And not only do they start to follow Jesus, but they themselves also bear further witness to Jesus. And in all of that, they also come face to face with the transforming purposes of Jesus. Uh, so John's witness and, and the results that are recounted in our passage are amazingly fruitful. And, and as we seek to live as faithful witnesses to Jesus, we will see these kinds of things take place too. And, and so the effect of John's witness here in our passage is something that we want to spend good time on and understand well. Um, what, what, what does a positive response to the message about Jesus look like? And what, what happens when someone hears the message about Christ and turns to follow him? We need to know how this looks. 
And we need to know how this looks, not only to help understand our own experiences as followers of Jesus more completely. We find ourselves in this text, in a sense, it can be like a mirror. This is how we've responded to Jesus if we're believing in him, right? But we also need what's here in order to know what this positive response looks like for the sake of our own expectations as we see others turn to Jesus. We need to know what an effective witness to Jesus looks like as people respond in faith. And this passage will help us with that. However, before we get into the details of the effect of John's witness that, that's positive, uh, before we do that, though, it's also, use the word positive, I might give a little disclaimer to that later, but um, before we do that, though, it's also probably good for us to consider a framework for effective witnessing a little more broadly. Uh, so, so I want to just take a couple minutes with this before we get into the text, because if we only view a truly effective witness for Jesus through the lens of the positive response that's here in our passage, we will likely become very discouraged fairly quickly. Because while John is effectively positive here, it is worth noting that only two people respond to John here. Right? He's been preaching to crowds, and here's the response of just two, and we just need to note that. Right? Because most often when we speak about Jesus to others, especially in our particular context, and John the Baptist had plenty of this himself too, often when we speak about Jesus to others, the response is not so positive, at least initially. And so does that mean that our witness to Christ is not effective? Are we only to judge our witness as effective if it results in the positive elements we see unfolding in this passage? Well, no, of course not. And, and so we need a frame that fits around this whole idea of witness well, just so we don't grow weary in faithfully speaking about Jesus, even when the response isn't immediately as positive as we might otherwise uh, hope and pray that it will be. Uh, so I want to just briefly note two things here. Number one, uh, we may witness to Jesus and the person we're speaking to may continue to reject Jesus over the course of their whole life. This is a very real reaction to Jesus. I don't want him as my Lord. I refuse to admit that I need rescuing from this thing you call sin. I will not believe. Some will respond that way, like, like the scriptures make clear, because of the hardness of their heart. So, so refusing to yield to the truth of our need for salvation, that, that will happen. Now, that doesn't mean we're failures as witnesses. Jesus smiles upon us as his servants, as we witness no matter the outcome. Others are responsible for their turning or refusal to turn to Jesus. We're responsible to bring the message faithfully. Okay, so we may witness and we may do so faithfully and carefully and truthfully or even in a messed up kind of way because we feel our frailty in that. And, uh, but some may not believe as a result. And that doesn't mean we've been ineffective. Some just will not believe. That's something to be prepared for. And we need grace to not have that discourage us ultimately. We need grace to have us not stop praying for those people continually. Uh, be, because our job is the sharing, not the saving. And we have to always remind ourselves of that. Uh, so number one, we, we may witness and some will not believe. That doesn't mean we're failing. Um, we're doing our part as we, as we shine as a light for Jesus. So that's just one thing to keep in mind. Secondly, uh, number two of two here, just to think about, some may believe as a result of our witness, but we may never know it or even recognize the fact that the Lord has used us in that process. Um, in 1 Corinthians, Paul himself describes his own apostolic witness alongside another minister of the gospel whose name is Apollos. And, and in the context of bearing witness to Christ in their ministry, Paul makes this statement. He says, I planted, 
Apollos watered. Only God gives the growth. So, so in some cases, as we think about our witness, we are just planters or we are just waterers. Uh, we may not see the full effect, but that's okay. In the end, it's always the case that growth, that, that soft-hearted, spirit-worked response to the gospel and, and, and growth in grace, that's God's to give, not ours to force. We, we may never see the full results of our witness. That doesn't mean we're not effective in the, in the little planting or watering or whatever it may be that, that is our part to do. Um, Rick Phillips, who's a, who's a pastor and author, I think he's, he's pastoring in California now, but he, he tells a story of his own process of coming to Christ, and he speaks about moving into an apartment as a, as a young man, uh, a man far from Jesus at the time, and he's, and he's moving into his apartment, he's walking in and out with boxes, and at the same time, the lady who had lived in the apartment next door was just finishing moving out. Uh, so she's putting the last box in her car, and in their brief interaction, she sees that obviously he's just moving in, and so she asks him if uh, he has a, a church that he plans to attend, and he, the way he tells it, he says his response made it really clear that he was not interested in having that kind of conversation at all. And in other words, he was, he was ob obviously, and, and to the lady it was obvious that he wasn't interested in going to, to church at all. And so he said that, and, and she responded to his scowling reaction, as he describes it, by, by stammering that, well, if you're ever looking for a good church, there's a good one down the road. She got in her car, drove away, they never saw each other again. And in that context, he makes this comment. He says, I've often imagined how she must have been kicking herself for her attempt to witness. No doubt she felt like a total failure. His response was really sour to her at the time. However, in a matter of a few months, he'd uh, faced some things in life. And as a result, he remembered the lady's invitation. He walked into that church. He heard the gospel. He got converted. And he's now a very fruitful and effective pastor in a, in a, in a larger church, author, reaching many for Jesus, and she'll never know. She'll never know. But the Lord used her. And so, so all that to say, when we talk about effective witnessing, we have to be careful not to get ourselves in a spot of unnecessary discouragements because we're using improper metrics. Right? Some may respond, some may not. We may see the fruit, we may never know, but one plants and other waters. God gives the growth. God gives the growth. So, we say all that just, just by way of framing our study today because we're going to speak to the positive effect of John the Baptist's witness this morning. I'm even cringing in my own title there because the effect of our witness is always fruitful and that the gospel goes out and the word of God always does exactly what he wants it to do no matter the case. We know that about, about God's truth. But, but we have to call this something. So I'm going to say it's the positive effect of John the Baptist's witness. And, and what's here is going to be very encouraging. And, and, and be, that's because mainly what's here does happen. And we know that because those of us sitting here today who are trusting in Jesus, we prove what's here does happen because it's happened to us. We can, we can recount this uh, kind of situation that we'll see uh, playing out in our te text going on in our own lives. We see that. And so as we see how the effect of John the Baptist's message is wonderfully effective in directing people toward Jesus, we, we can be encouraged in how the good news about Jesus has affected us, even as we think about the process, uh, with maybe a little more clarity under the scriptures. And we can also be encouraged by the effect that the message of the gospel can have uh, in those around us. So, by way of a long introduction, there, there we have it. Now, let's get into the text. So, we're going to focus on verses 35 to 42. Uh, we'll gather it all under the broad heading of John's effective message. And we're going to start uh, with verses 35 to 39. Uh, where we can say that John's message was effective and that people heard it 
and followed Jesus. But I think if I was going to give this just a two-word heading, we would call it costly following. Okay, so costly following. And we'll unpack what that means here. Uh, so this is verses 35 to 39. In fact, maybe I'll just, I'll just read it again so it's fresh in our minds. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and noticed them following him, he asked them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come and you'll see, he replied. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was about four in the afternoon. Um, so this section opens with John doing what we actually focused on last week. John is proclaiming the central message about Jesus, which is what we talked about last Sunday. Behold the Lamb of God. So John is, is conducting his ministry. He's standing with two of his disciples there, the text says. So two men who are John's disciples, uniquely committing, uh, committed to following John. In fact, John 3 makes it clear that his disciples called him rabbi. So he's, he's their teacher. Uh, they're, they're, they're following John. And, and as John is standing there with him, Jesus passes by and John points his two disciples in Jesus' direction and he says, there's the one who's come to take away our sin. The Lamb of God. He's the one. And we talked at length last week about the significance of this Lamb of God message of, of John, of John's here. But, but here John's pointed to Jesus. He's speaking to two of his own followers about how Jesus is actually the one they need. He's the guy. Right? And what happens? Well, in verse 37, those two disciples heard what John said, and followed Jesus. Right? John's witness was effective. Jesus is the one, so off they go and follow Jesus. And then as we, we read, uh, we see Jesus there tur turning, sees them following him. He asks them a question, what are you looking for? And these two disciples refer to Jesus as rabbi. They don't really answer his question, but, but they do in a sense as they refer to Jesus as rabbi in verse 38. Uh, John helps us with the translation here in telling us that rabbi means teacher. Uh, but really, it's more than just a teacher. It's a, it's a title of honor that's uh, given to one who you're uniquely recognizing to be a teacher you're attaching yourself to. Um, and, and so these disciples, they use this title for Jesus as he asks them what they're looking for, indicating that they desire to be his follower. They desire him to be their teacher. And, and so uh, they respond by asking Jesus where he's staying because they want to come with him. He replies, come and see. And so they, they go and stay with him, the text says. Now, there are a number of things we could, we could dwell on here, but, but the main line that's carried through this text hinges on this verb, followed. So in verse 37, the two disciples heard John's message about Jesus, and they followed Jesus, um, which the next verses then about that interaction, they serve to illustrate the following of Jesus. They call him rabbi, that honorific title, uh, and they follow him. They're desiring to be his disciple. They go stay where he's staying. Uh, this verb, followed, it can have a neutral meaning in Greek. Right? And we know John does this with regularity. He takes normal words and infuses them with big, important meaning. And he does this throughout his gospel with this word translated follow. Um, so, so we know in a regular way, follow just means to go along behind someone, go where they go, and so on. But throughout this gospel, it is a word that almost in every case, not quite every, but almost every case is connected to this act of discipleship, this act of following Jesus as the one we're learning from, as the one we're yielding to, trusting in, all of these kinds of things. And, and even the verb tense here indicates a kind of once-for-all action on the part of these two new followers. Uh, so commentators point out that we could paraphrase this follow word as something like, 
they cast their lot in with Jesus once and for all. That's what's being indicated. They followed him. Which is an amazing effect of John's witness. John says to his two current followers, Behold the Lamb of God. They leave John, uh, their current rabbi, and they go follow Jesus and completely give themselves over to following him. And we wonder how must John have felt about this. Right? He, did, did he go around and look at, look at who was next to him at that time and, and say something like, Oops, I just lost my two best guys? No, John didn't do that. We know he didn't. Because John knows the whole point of his ministry is to say that the one who comes after me ranks ahead of me. Right? Jesus is the one. Look to him. Trust in him. Follow him. And this is not to say that John lost all his own disciple group. Some remained with John even throughout his time in prison later on. We read about that. But this is to say that John's effective witness caused people to leave his own ministry and follow Jesus. As we think about the implications of this, certainly there's room to discuss pride in our own ministry. You know, if this were a pastor's conference, this might be a different kind of sermon. But so often it seems that spiritual leaders in our own day are more concerned about the volume of their own ministry and the attention they get so much so that they've long since lost sight of promoting Jesus. So, so that's an application point here to be sure. But in a broader way, that this effective witness that results in people following Jesus instead of us, that this has implications for us too. Bruce Milne, who, who was a faithful pastor for something like 40 years up in Vancouver, B.C., he makes a comment along these lines. Uh, he, he says something, this isn't quite word for word, but he says something like, in our witness to Jesus, we must be willing to mortgage our personal ambitions and popularity out of a consuming concern for Jesus' preeminence. Read that again. In our witness to Jesus, we must be willing to mortgage our personal ambitions and popularity out of a consuming concern for Jesus' preeminence. So, so John's own follower number went down because he was a faithful witness to Jesus. When we are faithful witnesses to Jesus, as people turn and follow Jesus, we can expect things to go down for us at times. For example, in the context of our working environments, we may mortgage the respect of some of our other co-workers who find out that we're one of those Jesus follower types as we witness to Christ. Right? Or in our broader family uh, interactions, we might mortgage our acceptability within family dynamics as we witness to Christ. Or in our group of friends, well, we may choose to not engage in certain activities and instead seek to be a light for Jesus, we may put those very friendships on the line as a result. For Christ to go up, we oftentimes have to go down. In fact, that's what John is going to say very specifically in John chapter 3. He must increase, but I what? We know the verse. But I must decrease. For him to go up means I go down. For John, as he witnessed to Jesus faithfully, some followed Jesus and they followed in a significant way. The language makes it clear, but it costs John. It's costly following. Right? Jesus went up. John's numbers went down. And in the task of directing others to follow Jesus, we can experience the same thing. In fact, one of the ways we can evaluate our own witness to Jesus from time to time is just to ask myself, how, of, how, how, how often have I actually been brought lower because I'm bearing witness to Jesus Christ? Have I made sure to keep myself elevated? Because I find upon honest reflection, most of the time that I find myself most timid in my witness to Jesus, it's because what is underlying that is a desire to remain elevated in the eyes of whoever I'm about or attempting to speak to about Christ. Right? If 
but I must go down so Christ can go up. And that's a fundamental element of what it means to, to, to uh, bear witness to Jesus. So this is a costly following. Not in the normal sense in which we talk about a costly following, like the cost of discipleship, take up, my cross and take up your cross and follow me. This is costly on the other side as we bear witness to Jesus, realizing that it will bring us, bring us maybe lower than we were before. And we see that here with John. Some left him. So that's following. Uh, then secondly, we can also say that John's witness to Jesus was effective because others in turn also bore witness to Jesus. In other words, Jesus, uh, John's witness to Jesus produced other witnesses to Jesus. And we see this in verses 40, and, uh, 40 to 42. Uh, in fact, let me, let me read those again, just so we have those in our mind. So verse 40, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard John and followed him, followed Jesus. He first found his own brother Simon and told him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ, and he brought Simon to Jesus. Okay. So, so we have these two disciples of John the Baptist, we're told at this point, that have turned to Jesus. One of them remains nameless throughout this account, uh, which we can only guess is John the Apostle, the author of this gospel. He likes to include himself and not tell us it's him. Right? It's probably John the Apostle. But the other of the two who followed Jesus here is Andrew. And it's interesting that Andrew is identified for us in this passage as Simon Peter's brother. And that's interesting because we actually haven't even met Peter yet in the narrative. Right? He's still a verse away. And yet Andrew's identity is clarified by this person, Peter, whom we haven't even met yet. However, John the Apostle uh, wrote this gospel to the early church. And, and we know that Peter was a very central figure in the early church. So if we set ourselves in the context of John's first readers, um, Andrew was Peter's brother. And while he was an apostle, he wasn't so well known. Uh, so our author is thinking, if we're going to talk about Andrew, to just remind everybody who this Andrew figure is, we have to attach him to Peter, who is much more well known. And, and we can actually just pause there and note that Andrew, who's going to be a very effective witness here, as we'll see, uh, the most effective witnesses to Jesus are, in fact, extremely unknown so oftentimes. Right? Even like the lady who witnessed to Rick Phillips in her car as she drove away. We'll never know who that lady was, but what an impact she had. You know, for all the Instagram accounts and huge ministries and Twitter followers and books published out there, for all of the popular stuff out there today, we, we can't have any doubt about the fact that when we get to heaven, the scales will be tipped and the balances will be different, and there will be many faithful witnesses to Christ who receive great glory, though totally unknown in this life. The glory of the less known witnesses will be great, like Andrew. But here we have Andrew. Remember Andrew, John's saying? You probably don't. Probably don't at all. Actually, he's Peter's brother. Oh, yes, okay, Andrew. We, we know Peter, at least, so we can make that connection. Peter. Well, Andrew, he responded to John the Baptist's witness to follow Jesus. And, and in that, he, he actually first finds his own brother, Simon, who's Peter. That's the first thing Andrew does. He finds Simon. He tells him, we found the Messiah. And in verse 42, Andrew brings Simon to Jesus. Now, I'm exercising restraint this morning because if we wanted to, we could spend a whole sermon just on Andrew here. We're not going to, maybe another time. Um, what, what we will say is that, is that as John the Baptist witnessed about Jesus, he turned Andrew to Jesus who proved to be a very effective witness himself. And we just notice how it's laid out here. So Andrew was, was local in his witness. Right? He didn't go far and wide and speak to crowds. He just went and found his brother. Right? And he was prioritized in his witness. 
You notice how he doesn't go spend a month or two years with Jesus first and then say, okay, now I'm ready to go and really be a witness. No, the text actually tells us very clearly the first thing he did is go get Peter and, and, and speak to him. And, and he was, Andrew was very simple in his witness. What does he say? Let me lay out for you this extraordinary apologetic for the significance of the Messiah who's now appeared on the scene after all these years of biblical history. As we, no, what did he say? We found him. Here's the, here's the guy. You need to come over here. Right? He was simple in his witness. So Andrew was local, told his brother about Jesus. Closest people to you are not there by accident, and we need to remind ourselves of that. Closest people to us are there by God's design for us to be a light for Christ too. Andrew was local in his witness. He was prioritized. First thing I'm going to do is tell my brother about Jesus. First thing. And he was simple. We found him. Let us be simple in our witness, shall we? And then we can also add that Andrew was habitual in his witness. And we have to say this because every time in John's gospel that we meet Andrew, so here and then in chapter 6 and then in chapter 12, every time we come across Andrew in this gospel account, he's bringing people to Jesus. Every time. So he's local, goes to his brother, he's prioritized, he goes to his brother first, he's simple, we found Jesus, and he's habitual. He's always bringing people to Jesus. So there's the four-point sermon. Somebody can take that and use it if you want to. But but, but here's the thing for today. Just even in terms of the the nature of our personalities, speaking, I'll speak for myself, I, I may not find myself to be the most energetic or charismatic or dynamic or vigorous witness to Jesus. I want to be a a vigorous witness to Jesus. We find ourselves weak in that so oftentimes, even just personality-wise. Peter will ultimately become the martyr who would die for the sake of Christ. As church and secular history puts the pieces together for us under the reign of Emperor Nero and his extension of terror to Christians after the fires in Rome, uh, Peter, the one who was volatile, would face martyrdom uh, and, and do so strong in the faith to the end. So Simon, son of John, the volatile, emotive, unstable man, becomes a rock. Because that's what Jesus does with people. He looks at them, and he doesn't see who you are or who you have been. Instead, he looks at you, and he sees who he will in his almighty power save you to be. For Peter, it was a process. For you and me, it's a process. But to come to Christ is to come to the one who says, you, my volatile follower, shall be transformed. You, my timid follower, shall become courageous in the faith. You, my weary follower, shall become strong in the strength I supply. You, my tempted follower, you shall become flourishing in the grace that overcomes sin. So effective witness to Jesus brings people into a place of confrontation with Jesus who doesn't leave us where we are, but calls us by the name we will one day be. Did you know that's how Jesus looks at you as you come to him? We can think, or the people we witness to can think, I'm just not ready yet to turn to Jesus. Look at this mess I need to get cleaned up first. You know, look at this dirt over here, or my weakness over there, or the sin that tangles me up inside. I'll get all this sorted out, and then I'll come to Jesus. No, Jesus says, come to me, and I'll see you, not for the history that weighs heavy upon you, and not for the stuff that's dark and difficult that burdens you. I will see you right now for who I will one day make you to be. As Keller put it, your future glory self. Jesus looks at volatile, impulsive, and unreliable Simon, son of John, and he sees transformed Peter. Jesus looks at you and he looks at me and he sees transformed you and me. And then as we come to him, he starts working that out little by little, day by day, tumbling along the way as we go. He starts moving us toward the future glory selves that he saves us to be. 
which is a beautiful thing to be able to bear witness to. Let, let me tell you about Jesus, who doesn't see you for all your brokenness and pain. Here's the amazing thing about our witness. He doesn't see you for all, our, all your brokenness and pain. Though, let me tell you, he completely identifies with you in all of that pain. He doesn't define you by that pain. Instead, he sees you as the glorious, transformed person he's died on the cross to save you to be. So Jesus looks on Peter with a transformed view, just as he looks on all who will come to, us, come to him in faith with a transformed view. He looks on those who will come to him in faith, who we bear witness to. He looks at us with this view uh, for our future glory selves. And even now, even now, we have an awareness of Christ's transforming grace at work. We know that about our own lives. We're not where we one day will be, but we're going in that direction. You know, John Newton, the hymn writer, pastor, he put it this way. He says, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world, but still I am not what I used to be. The story's told, you've probably heard it, of Michelangelo who's in public, he's working feverishly, chipping away at this huge bulky chunk of stone and this person comes up to him and he asks Michelangelo what he's doing and Michelangelo replied, I'm releasing the angel imprisoned in this marble. And that's what Jesus is doing for Peter and that's what Jesus does for us. When we bear witness to Christ, not only do people follow Christ, and not only do those people themselves start being a witness to Jesus as well, but we also come face to face with Jesus' own transforming purposes, releasing the future glory selves as he starts chipping away at our hearts. I'm not what I once was, I'm not what I one day will be, but Christ is bringing me there, and he sees me even now for what he will one day make. And so we thank God. We thank God He doesn't see us for our worst. We thank God He loves us enough to draw us out in the newness of life that He alone can provide. And, and what else can we do at that point but tell others about this kind of grace? I mean, what an impulse to evangelism this is. The one who comes and sees us for who He's going to transform us to be. So all of this helps us think about John's faithful witness. Some will follow and, and witness and be transformed by Jesus as we bear witness to the fact that he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we're thankful for that message. We're thankful for its truth. And we're thankful to God for his word as it reminds us of these things. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do ask that we be refreshed by this truth this morning. We're thankful, Lord Jesus, that uh, you are the great king who's in the business of transforming us, transforming others, bringing us to be uh, who you've ultimately called us and saved us to be. Uh, while we feel uh, oftentimes the struggle of that process, we do know that you're the one who is working in our hearts. By the Spirit of God, we are being transformed. And, and as we're transformed, Lord, we desire that part of that would be a renewed compulsion to speak about the significance of Christ and His cross, the simple message of the gospel, Lord. May it be ready on our lips. and May we have opportunity to speak it. And then may you, O oh God, grant the growth and uh, bring many people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in His name. Amen.